like to invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 11. We have been in this series uh, talking about just uh, different encounters. We've been looking through the book of John, encounters that uh, many individuals have had with Jesus. And, and uh, you know, I think if there's one topic that we try to uh, avoid talking about, it's going to be the one that we're going to talk about this morning. And uh, it's, uh, it's a topic... Uh, that sometimes we shy away from or are uncomfortable with and, and so on. And it's a, it's a topic that I think is, is so, so valuable to, to talk about. And, and the topic I'm talking about is this topic of death. And, and uh, this text that we're going to look at today in John chapter 11 is all about death. It's, uh, um, but then stop for a moment. It's also about life. You know, it'd be easy for us to take and, and, and to read through this passage and just see the death about it, but not see uh, life. In fact, I think part of what sets this up is if you go back just a chapter to John chapter 10, where John, or, or, yeah, John talks about or, or, G, uh, or records Jesus as saying in John chapter 10, verse 10, um, Jesus uh, was talking, uh, he says he's the good shepherd, and he says the th- the the thief uh, comes into the sheepfold and he comes to steal, steal and to kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and to have that life abundantly. And I um, think that um, this is one of those ways. Uh, this passage of scripture here through this story of a Lazarus that we're going to be talking about is, is really um, about life, even though it's about death. It's really ultimately about life. Uh, this is an interesting text, and I think that most of you are probably familiar with it. It's, it's uh, again, the story of Lazarus, but John chapter 11, we're going to start with verse number 1. And, and uh, so if you want to follow along, uh, whether in your own Bibles there or up on the screen, um, it's, uh, it's a little lengthier passage. We don't always read through the longer passages like this, but I'd like us to really to think through how this is all being laid out, if we, we could do that this morning. But starting there with verse number one. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, that, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, or, and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stared, stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. 
Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I just think that this is an incredible story. This man has been dead for four years, or for four days, for four years, for four days. But for some reason, Jesus chooses not to to go to him immediately. He just kind of waits for all of this to happen. and he, He doesn't act immediately, but he waits for two days, and then he travels a day's journey. And so probably about the time that the servant arrives to tell him that the brother was, that, 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 that he was sick, Lazarus had already died. He comes back and, and we see what happens. Uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And uh, I, I think that this, in this text, I think that we get just this unusual glimpse of Jesus. And, and I'm just wondering if there's some things that we might learn about him. 
For example, I wonder if we learn this, that Jesus loves us in spite of our humanity. He loves us in spite of our um, humanity. You know, it's never been difficult for us to preach or to talk about the, the fact that Jesus loves us. We have songs about that. We, we love to talk about that. But, you know, when you take a good look at who we are, it makes it a little harder to understand how he could uh, actually love us. I mean, it's pretty easy, I think, to, to love generically, if you know what I mean. It's easy for us to love in principle, but then when you put a face on it, sometimes it gets a little bit harder. And the, the, the truth of the matter is that these people have faces on them. They have some unusual faces, and yet Jesus chooses to love them anyway. You see it in verse number, verse number three where he says, Lord, the one that you love is sick, or, is sick. or look at verse 5. It says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. In fact, a little bit later in the text in verse 35 when it says that Jesus wept, the response was very simple, simply this. Uh, see how much he loved him. And Jesus does, in fact, love us in spite of our expectations. You ever notice how strongly we have some of those expectations of Jesus, right? That Jesus is supposed to do certain things for us. We, we know or we think we know how he's going to act or respond to, to things, maybe to our prayers. See, Jesus, if, if you had been there, she says, my brother would not have died. There's, he doesn't always meet our expectations. Maybe you heard about the preacher who was called up to the hospital. One of the church members was there and wasn't doing very well. They had asked the preacher to show up, and so he did. And so he, this lady wasn't feeling very well, and she wasn't expected to live much longer. And, and the preacher asked if she'd like him to pray, and she said, well, yes. And he says, well, what would you like me to pray? I mean, you realize that they were at this near, you know, end-of-life experience. And, and so he says, well, what would you like me to pray for? And she says, that I would get better. And so he puts his hand on her shoulder and he, and he begins to pray that God would make her better. And, and no sooner had he said the prayer and lifted his hand up and that she just hopped up out of bed and she goes in and puts on her bathrobe and she runs down to the nurse's station and she says to them, you know, I'd like to check out now. I mean, she, she looked well. And the preacher just stood there, you know. And he started walking down the high hallway and he gets into the elevator and he, as he's going into the elevator, somebody heard him say, overheard him say as he was making a prayer to God, he says, God, don't you ever do that to me again. <laughs> Expectation, right? See, he knew that nothing was going to happen when he prayed, just like we oftentimes have some expectations that, well, that God is going to act in certain ways or not act in certain ways. And it's that story. Um, it was from both of them, Mary and Martha. Lord, if you only had been there, things would have turned out way differently. I think we've all had those expectations. When we didn't quite, when, when God didn't or when Christ didn't quite live up to the way that we thought. Am I right? Something interesting happens in this text, actually. It's, it's hard to see, but in verse 33, when we read over this, it says that when Jesus saw her weeping, that, 
that the Jews who had come along also uh, were weeping. It says that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now that that word or that idea of being deeply moved in trouble uh, in troubled in spirit it it typically has anger associated with it. It's it's a phrase that indicates that there's this this level of frustration that that has risen. And it occurs later in the text when they don't seem to to understand what Jesus' plans are or that he plans on really raising this guy from from the dead. And and again, he is troubled by by all of the noise and by all of the commotion because people just don't quite seem to, to get the point that he's trying to make. They all have these expectations. They... And somehow that, it just seems to bother Jesus. It kind of gets under his skin a little bit. But he loves us anyway. That's the point. That's what is, to me, is so fascinating, is that even when we try to make him something that he doesn't want to be, think about that. Even when we, don't, when we try to make him something he doesn't want to be, he doesn't in any way fault us for that. He just simply chooses to go ahead with his actions and love us. I think it's interesting, too, at least in this text, that he never condemns their grief. I, you ever notice that? It's, you know, Jesus arrives, there's people mourning, they're just grieving, they, they all seem to grieve much differently. I mean, for, for example, Martha seems to grieve in a way that's radically different than her sister Mary. Martha seems to be the kind of person who expresses her grief by cleaning the house and, and by making a meal. But Mary, she grieves... Uh, she expresses that grief by being the person who sits and who ponders and who meditates. And, and, and in neither case does he say, now buck up. You're supposed to be a believer. You need to quit all that. In fact, what does he do? He actually weeps with them. And he gives them the permission to grieve. And, and, and all because, I, I think, because death hurts. I mean, it Death is something that, at least that's been my experience, is that it, it hurts really bad. It doesn't seem to make any difference whether or not you're prepared for it. When it happens, it hurts. And there's nothing in Scripture that says that Christians don't grieve. It's just that they don't grieve like the rest of those, like, like, the re- or like those who have no hope. Christians grieve as those who know that there is a resurrection. They grieve as those uh, that, that, that there is going to be, uh, who know that there is going to be a change one day. It's just that that change is yet out there and the pain is still in here. But the resurrection language, uh, it, it just pervades this text. It's this love of of Jesus for people, and in spite of the fact that we are human, and in spite of the fact that we have bad expectations, it, it even shows up a little bit later in, in verse number 49. This is a really odd statement in John chapter 11. It says, uh, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was, who was high priest that year, spoke up. He says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Verse uh, 51, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. I mean, this guy doesn't even realize it. 
But God has just used him to pronounce this statement, that God loves Israel so much that he was willing to die for them, that it was better for one man to die than for, for all of them to die, because his death made a difference. And even though he didn't realize it, even though he didn't realize that that's what Jesus was saying, he said it and God used it. Well, in this text, what you meet is a Jesus who loves us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our humanity. But you also meet a Jesus who gives us hope in spite of our mortality. He gives us hope in spite of our mortality. And by the way, we are mortal, right? <laughs> I mean, death is inevitable for all of us. It is, that, that is in case, unless God, Christ comes before that happens. But, but none of us get to bypass it. And that's pretty clear in this text here. In verse number 23, Jesus says in the midst of this death scene, now your brother is going to rise again. Verse 25, I am the resurrection. You know, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, he says? And, but, but here's this death resurrection symbolism. Look at verse 40. Uh, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would not see the glory of God? And, and this, this resurrection would occur. There's this promise that, well, I think we sometimes have a hard time with. Because it is inevitable, right? Isn't it? It's inevitable. Inevitable. It's, it's the one thing that is absolutely certain. Well, actually, they say there's two, right? Death and taxes. Yeah. But we're all destined. The Bible says that. We're all destined to die and to stay dead. And that's the power of this text here. That is the incredible promise that if we believe in Him, that we will not stay in the grave. Just as He didn't stay in the grave, we're not going to stay in the grave either. If we believe in Him, He said, we will live. I, and, and I know this is really an uncomfortable subject, isn't it? It's, it's uncomfortable because we don't like to. I mean, I'm not talking about it in, in a church service, but it's an uncomfortable subject when we're out there. I mean, you talk, you start to talk about death, and people are like, eh, yeah, okay. Um, but we don't like to talk about it. In fact, you know, we have done a really good job in our, in our American culture of getting rid of it because, you know, we don't even talk about it anymore. I mean, this is pretty harsh. But, you know, Jesus said it really plainly. He says, Lazarus died. But we don't hear that much anymore. You know, if you look at the papers, what does it say? Uh, Mrs. Grady, she passed away. Uh, she went to her eternal reward. And Jesus just comes right up and says, he died. He's dead. But, you know, we've got enough euphemisms for death that we could just go on and on and on and never really actually have to use the word because we don't necessarily want to deal with it. We've got funeral homes, right? They're not morgues. I used to work uh, for, I think I've told you this before, we've, we've, uh, I used to work for a funeral home, Olson Schwartz Funeral Home, Bemidji, Bemidji Minnesota, when I was going to, going to college at Bemidji State University. And I, I had a number of different uh, things that I did, but basically every, uh, worked there every other day and every other weekend and would be on call and, and waiting for, for uh, 
uh, you know, that call and, and, and had certain responsibilities of uh, not just handling phone calls, but during whatever hour of the night, you know, um, um, would be handling some of those responsibilities. And then during the weekends and things, handling, oh, just anything from vacuuming up and doing visitations and dusting caskets and, you know, you got the idea. Um, but something that really struck me as when I worked there was when families would come in and they would come in to, to select a casket. There were so many different castics, caskets to choose from with many different price tags. But one of the things that I noticed is that the price tag wasn't what mattered. You know what mattered? It was the wildlife scene. It was the flowers on the handle. You know, they, they wanted a casket that was appropriate for their loved one. Because it's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it's so tough to deal with this. With this. And, 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 and you can be as stoic as you want to about this thing, but it's in there, and it, and it just hurts. Because we are mortal. And when we see somebody go through it, it kind of reminds us that one day, that's going to be me. And yet in the midst of this text is this incredible promise that we will live again. In fact, it becomes so foundational in the New Testament to virtually everything that Jesus says. The apostles come along and they, tie, they virtually tie everything that they teach to the promise of the resurrection. That there's something inherently, inherently powerful uh, about this imagery of the resurrection. In fact, later on in, in, the, in the part of the Ephesians, in the first part or the la- later part of, the, of Ephesians chapter 1, here's what Paul, the Apostle Paul says. He says, I pray also that you, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. You see it? Do you hear that? We have hope because He demonstrated in Christ that He has the power to do what no one else could do. You see, dying as a Christian is not the worst thing that can happen to you or any of us. It's the power of this imagery that shows up, I think, for example, in the baptistry. We, we die to our sins. We're buried in a watery grave. And we are raised. Do you hear that, that language? We are raised to a new life. It, it, it's, it's resurrection language because because we participate in his, in his resurrection symbolically. The Lord's table, tied to the resurrection. We meet around this table in, in the hope that we will meet here until he comes again. You've got to believe that he was raised from the dead to believe that he's coming back. And I think as we think about those things, what an appropriate time for us to share in the Lord's Supper together. Let me pray for, for this meal, and we'll think about that. Father, we thank you for this meal. We thank you for just the, 
the opportunity that we have each and every Sunday to come here and to recognize that, that this, in fact, is something that, that is, um, reminds us of, your, of the fact that we one day will live again. We're thankful for your sacrifice and for all you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One with God, the Lord most high. Your hidden glory in creation. Now revealed in you are Christ. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name. What a beautiful name it is, nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought What could separate us now? What a wonderful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a wonderful name it is. Nothing compares to this. What a wonderful
powerful, powerful, powerful name. And uh, when we think about these um, two wonderful images, the image of uh, baptism, the image of communion, and we think about all those images that from the church that really tie us to the resurrection of a dead man who had been into a, in, a, in the grave for four days. And the King James says, you know what it says, right? He stinketh. <laughs> well, see, in this text, one of the things that we see is a Jesus who loves us. But we also see a Jesus who gives us hope. But even more than that, we see in this text a Jesus who seeks us even in our hostility, in spite of the hostility that we sometimes show. It's just, it's an interesting statement that we see back in verse number eight. Jesus says that we're going to, he says that, that we're, we're going to go to Judea, and, and the disciples say, Rabbi, you know, a little while ago, you know, don't you remember they tried to stone you there, and, and now you're going to go back there? Why are you doing this? And what does he do? Doesn't matter, he goes back. And, and this incredible statement occurs in verse number 16. I, I don't think sometimes we give this, well, we don't give Thomas, doubting Thomas, too much credit, right? Um, he's just a doubter. But if Thomas, but it's Thomas who speaks up and he says, all right, guys, if he's going to Jerusalem and if he's going to face all of this here again, we might as well go with him and die too. I love that statement. But it's that risk, it's that personal risk of seeking out people in spite of our, our hostility toward him. Look at verse number 41. They took the stone away. Jesus looks up at them and says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Why would he risk going back? Because he knew that it was an opportunity to seek these people out and help them come to faith once and for all. You know, um, by the way, this is the seventh sign that we see in the book of John up to this point. Um, seven of them, that's really kind of an interesting number to have, but you have in chapter 2, you have this turning of water into wine. You have in chapter 4, you have the healing of the official son. You have uh, healing of the lame man in chapter 5. You have the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. You have walking on water in chapter 6. Uh, the healing of the blind man in chapter 9. And now the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And all of those are an attempt by John to identify specific miraculous events that points to Jesus as coming to seek out you and me in spite of ourselves. And yet he understands that it may not work. 
when Luke tells this, tells the parable of the rich man and, and Lazarus, both men die and they go to different rewards. And there's this, there's this chasm that is between them. The rich man sees Lazarus with, with Abraham. And, and I, I don't know that this has in any way any kind of connection to our text out of the fact, outside of the fact that this is a Lazarus story. But I think that the indication is very clear in, 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 in the rich man. He says, you know, I need you. He says, would you send Lazarus to warn my brothers? Send them news that this is really a terrible place down here to be. And, and, and they ought to do something about the relationship with God. And Jesus says, even if a man comes back from the dead, they won't believe. Because miracles have very little value in convincing people. They just don't do much. Because in our, in our rationality, we tend to be able to explain them away. You know, it's a, it's a magician's uh, trick. It's, uh, that, that's, our, that's really our, our basic response. It's, it's smoke and mirrors. We've seen it on, on TV too many, too, too many times or too often. Or, or we explain it away in other ways. But yet, this is one incredible miracle right here. This man had been in the grave for four days. He is still bound. He is still wrapped. His sister has the courage to say, Jesus, are you sure that you want to, want to, want to do this? He isn't going to smell very good. And Jesus says, Lazarus, you come out. And I would have loved to have been there. Wouldn't you? I mean, have you ever tried to process this in your brain? I mean, I mean, he's back there. Lazarus is back there in this cave, and he is bound hand and foot, and he's got to somehow roll off of that stone. And, and I, I could just see him coming out, you know? I mean, I think about this. Jesus says, somebody ought to unwrap that boy. <laughs> I mean, what an incredible statement. And yet Jesus would not use this as the primary miracle to convince the world. He would use you and me. Because there is more evidence in the power of a changed life than in a man resurrected from the dead. Because there's not much that you can do to excuse your life. You can't call that just a a figment of somebody's imagination. You can't call that a legend... Because you're looking at it every day. And so the church lives and it preaches a resurrected life that people are allowed to look at and they encounter a Jesus who in spite of our hostility, they, uh, he still comes and he still seeks us out every day. Well, you're probably wondering if there's a point to this, right? I actually think there's several. Like maybe this one, okay? Jesus is Lord even over the grave. I mean, you can see that in there, definitely, can't you? That, that would really be a good point, wouldn't it? Or how about this one, that grief is normal and natural, and it's okay. I, I mean, don't, don't uh, feel guilty uh, for grieving when somebody dies because it hurts. Or how about this one? Jesus honors us with his presence even in our most difficult hours. When they are suffering the loss of a loved one, guess who shows up? At risk of his own life, he shows up because that is his promise. Or how about this? That even miracles sometimes can't convince the most skeptical of people. 
That's probably in this text as well. But you know, if I was going to point out, point to the major point, if I was going to tell you what I thought that this text was really about, I'd have to tell you that I think it says this. Death is not optional, but life is. You don't get to choose not to die, but you can choose to live. Thomas did. Well, boys, let's go with them. Even if we have to die, let's go. Mary and Martha did. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and I believe that my brother will rise again. In fact, some of the Jews did as well. We, we didn't read it in verse number 45. It says that many of the Jews had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, that they put their faith in him. Some of them chose life. The very next line is the troubling one, I think. Um, if you read that in your Bibles there, verse number 46, it says, but some of them. But some of them. Some of them. Some of them believed, but some of them. See, you and I don't have a choice about death, but we do have a choice about life. It is inevitable that we all die. It is optional that we all live. And so Jesus simply, simply gives you and me a choice. He invites us to choose life. It simply means making that relationship with Jesus possible. It simply means responding to who He is each and every day. It just means taking a look at His life and believing in Him and obeying Him and joining Him in a relationship. Because the bottom line is this. Because He lives, we too can live. We too have hope. And that's the promise of this. And that's the... That is the power of this passage. Let's pray together. Father, we want to choose you. We want to obey you. We want to follow you. We want to recognize you and not just simply read uh, about you and stories about you, but, um, but follow what your words say, to do what you said, not just merely listen to the word, but do what it says. And Father, I just pray that you would, would convince us every day. Sometimes we maybe forget or sometimes we uh, get distracted and we forget that there's real power in the name of Jesus. Maybe there's areas in each of our lives where we need to, we need to adjust some things. And it's not us that does the, adjudging, uh, does the adjusting, but we need to come to you and let you do what you're perp- perfectly capable of doing, capable of doing to adjust our lives in the way that you would want it, the way that you see fit, so that we would represent what you want us to be, so that we can, in fact, be that amazing sign to the people around us of what you're all about. And we look forward, God, to the day when we will shed all of this humanity and we'll shed this body and just see you as you are and uh, stand before you and um, have true life, have life abundantly, have life to the full. There's power in the name of Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray.